Tonight we're going to continue, if you weren't with us last week, I started a, kind of a continuation, I guess, not really a start, but a continuation of what I really believe God has given me as a theme for this year, which is talking about how wide and deep and long and high the love of God is, the way Paul writes to the Ephesian church. He said, I pray that the whole people of God may know and discover, because this is where the fullness of life comes in. And last week we were talking about understanding the, the uh, experience of that love, that we have to understand how much God loves us, not only in our minds, but it actually has to be so much of who we are. It has to be, it has to be internalized so that in our way of thinking, in our way of, of living, we remember that we are the beloved. We are the ones that God has chosen, the ones that God has died for, the ones that God has reconciled back to himself. And I showed you a commercial from New York Life, which was broadcast during the Super Bowl, one of the, I guess, the less popular ones, but with such a powerful meaning that it just really caught me by surprise. And so I want you to see it again, especially if you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to see it during the Super Bowl. So take a look one more time at this commercial. The ancient Greeks had four words for love. The first is philia. Philia is affection that grows from friendship. Next, there's storge, the kind you have for a grandparent or a brother. Third, there's eros, the uncontrollable urge to say, I love you. The fourth kind of love is different. It's the most admirable. It's called agape. Love as an action. It takes courage, sacrifice, strength. For 175 years, we've been helping people act on their love so they can look back or look ahead and say, we got it right. We did good. So it's love as an action. It's love that takes courage. It's love that is other-centered. And that's what really makes it different. And agape is an interesting concept because in New Testament times, in that Roman and Greek culture, that word wasn't really used. That word was a word that was kind of grabbed on by the by Jesus first, but then the apostles and the disciples, as they began teaching, agape became kind of the hallmark again of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And the reason it wasn't a popular word, because it was so very different. Because if you notice, when you're talking about philia and storge and uh, eros, what you're talking about is a relational love that benefits both sides, right? You get into those kinds of relationships, whether it's with a good friend, your dog, your husband or wife, those are mutually beneficial. But the thing about agape love is agape love tends to be very one-sided. It tends to be not something that I enter into so that you and I both benefit, but it's something that I actually demonstrate or give away regardless of whether or not I'm going to get anything back. Greg Boyd, who's one of my favorite pastor teachers, says this. He, 
this is what makes agape different than the other three. He says, agape is a kind of love you can have when there's nothing about the other you like. Or when you have no romantic interest in the other. And even when the other is your enemy rather than your friend. Who does that sound like? To love our enemies. Jesus came while we were enemies, right? To go to the cross and die. And he's called us as his followers to love those not because they love us back. Remember, he even says in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, what good is it if you love those who love you? Even the pagans do that. Even the non-believers do that. I'm calling you to a higher love. I'm calling you to a very different kind of love. That's what agape really is. Agape love, as I mentioned last week, is three things. It's what God is, because John writes to us twice, God is love. That means more than just God is loving or God is focused on us. It actually means that he and his character and his essence is love itself. And that's what makes it holy. We could think of agape kind of as holy love. It's different from brotherly love or sibling love or lover love. It's holy love because God is altogether different in his approach towards his creation. And so that's not a love that you find in general among people that haven't been loved, allowed themselves to be loved the way God loves us. So it's something that he wants us to experience, first and foremost, because it's very difficult to give away something that you haven't internalized, something that you haven't made a part of who you are. And so we want to understand that God loves us to the very, very core of who we are. Not sometimes, not when we're doing good things, but always. God loves us, not because of what we are or do, but because of who he is. And we can live in that, and that's where we find freedom, and that's where we find peace, to know that that love is never going to change. And so he wants us to experience that, but not just keep it to ourselves. He then calls us to give it away. He calls us to express so the agape love of God becomes real to us, if you remember from last week, as we do a couple of things. We learn to trust in his character. We learn to recognize his presence. We learn to believe his words, and we learn to remember his actions. Any of that ring a bell from last week? I gave you a homework assignment to look for the number three, remember? Anybody see any threes this week? Think about it. I'm looking in the, in the book the Bible, so that we can actually see the words, I love you, with an everlasting love, to take a look at the cross every time you see a cross and remember that God has gone all in on our behalf, remembering his actions, that that was for me personally. That's not just some random act in history. That's God's expression of his love itself. And then remembering his presence is always with us just by feeling the wind or feeling the breeze. Anybody experience God's love this week in a, in a unique way? I'm going to keep asking every Sunday until somebody actually is going to respond to me one Sunday and we're all going to fall out. Anybody? Great. Excellent. 
Thank you for speaking. <laughs> so let's take a look at the experience of love today again. At first, John was telling us we know how much God loves us and has put our, we have put our trust in him. He says anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. He said we love each other because he first loved us. And he has given us this command that those who love God must also love their fellow believers. There's something about what's supposed to happen in the community of faith, us, Generation Church, us. There's something about the way we are to care for each other that looks different than what goes on in just your family or your neighborhood or your close co-workers or any other grouping. And that's what makes us salt and light to the world. It's not what we know in our head and can convince somebody else to think about or believe. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you actually live out this agape love with each other, by the way you give yourselves completely for the good of the other. Greg Boyd says it well again. He says, God does not love because of the worth that he finds in another, as is typical of most expressions of love. Rather, God loves in order to ascribe worth to another. Let that sink in for a second, because that's really what we're talking about tonight. God loves in order to ascribe worth to another. Not based on how much money you earn, not based on how good you are, or moral or ethical, but the worth that comes from being someone who carries the image of God, regardless of whether they're Republican or Democrat, male or female, black, white, brown, red, wealthy or poor, God loves them and ascribes worth to them because they carry his very image. And brothers and sisters, he's called us to do exactly the same. And if we can grasp that, if we can really begin as a community and live like a community that believes that and lets that be the driving force behind all we're doing in this day and age, in this election year, can't you believe that we will be salt and light? Can't you believe that people would say that's different when we don't put every opinion that we may have about politics or religion or anything else on Facebook, but we actually learn to hold our tongue and more than hold our tongue, we actually learn to ascribe worth to somebody else regardless of whether or not we feel it simply because they carry that image of God. That's what we're talking about. That's what we've been called to do. What's your favorite Christmas carol? Strange question for February, right? Didn't we just put that to bed? Amy took down all of our Christmas decorations today. We had one little, one little tree on a table and a few boxes out there. <laughs> Literally, we did. We finally took it down. It was, it was hard. <laughs> What's your favorite? Oh, Holy Night. That is actually my favorite Christmas carol. What a surprise. You remember, you remember in that song, the verse says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, and what? The soul felt its worth. That's the core of agape. When you, you will know that you have been agaped when your soul feels its worth. 
And you will know that you have agaped someone else when they walk away from your conversation and from your act of love and from your kindness when their soul feels its worth. That's a beautiful expression, isn't it? Now that's your favorite Christmas carol too, isn't it? I'll bet. And Paul teaches this to the Ephesians church when he says this in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. The NIV says, as dearly loved children, because the Greek word there is agapetos, which means beloved, the ones who have received the agape of God. Imitate God. Imitate in Greek is actually the word mimetos, which is where we get mimic. So mimic God because you have been dearly loved. And then he goes on to say, live a life filled with love, or walk in love is the literal Hebrew, uh, Greek there, following the example of Christ. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, because he loved us and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So the general title of this sermon series is what? Through him and for him. And you can see it in this verse, right? Through God, we have received this love. Through God, Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice for us so that God himself is glorified. That's what Alex said when he laid the whole course out, right? That it's about us bringing glory to God. It's about us putting a smile on God's face. When we imitate him, when we mimic him, because we understand how deeply we're loved and we turn around and love somebody else, I believe God smiles. God looks at us and he's pleased. One more time, Greg Boyd says this. He says, love as defined by the one who is love lays down its life for another, however undeserving. Catch that. However undeserving. Agape love ascribes worth to another at a cost to oneself. On the cross, God expressed this love in its most perfect form. That's a great definition of agape. If you don't get anything else, that's the one you want to take away. Agape love ascribes worth to another at a cost to oneself. And the question that always stands before us is, am I prepared to pay that? Am I prepared to sacrifice myself the way Christ sacrificed himself for me. Isn't that what he means when he says, if you want to be my followers, you're going to have to do a couple of things. The first is you're going to have to deny yourself. In other words, stop making it about you and what you get out of the relationship. Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. Imitate me, mimic me, if you will. So we could say, what, what does agape then look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. He's the example, right? So agape love sounds like Jesus, acts like Jesus, and feels like Jesus' arms around us. And Philippians 2 reveals really the heart behind agape, and I want to just spend a few minutes looking at this tonight. First, let me read it all the way through because I think it's always important for us to use our ears first to hear the word of God, and then we'll go back and look at it a little more in depth. So Philippians 2 begins this way. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? 
Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Good questions for us to just sit with sometime. Paul says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving or agapeing one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all names. That's what we were just singing about. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, through him, for him. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. How are you doing with that? You have moments, don't you? Yep. Well, let's be honest here, right? We can be honest. There's some moments we go, man, where did, that was really good in me, wasn't it? Where did those words come from? Where did that accent come from? But most of us probably are sitting here thinking, mm, the record's not too good. The record could definitely be improved. But again, this is a through him and for him, and we were reminded in this same letter, Paul goes on to say that it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his purposes. He's not expecting us to work it up from inside. None of us have that strong of a will. None of us are able to overcome our flesh by ourselves. But by the Spirit of God living in us, then we have a power that is beyond our own, a supernatural power that enables us to accomplish what God wants from us. But the question that Paul's posing here, the challenge really that Paul's posing to every one of us tonight is, do you have the same attitude? Do you look at it the same way? Because that's what the word means. Phroneo is the Greek verb here. And what it means is to have an understanding, to have a certain perspective on things. It's the word, remember the story in Gospels where Jesus takes the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, away from all the crowds, away from all the ministry. And he says to them, who do people say that I am? And they go, well, some say you're John the Baptist come back. Some say you're Elijah, the prophet to come. Some say you're another prophet. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And what's Peter's great answer? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen. Yay, Peter. By the way, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and the leaders of the religious establishment and the political establishment are going to seize me, arrest me, torture me, and put me to death. And Peter says, uh-uh. No, Lord, that'll never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, get away from me, Satan, because you are a stumbling block. And he says, listen to this. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Because see, Peter's got a good heart there, doesn't he? 
when we all say, yeah, no, we don't want Jesus to die. But that's the same word. He's saying, Peter, your outlook, your frame of mind, your perspective, your way of understanding is actually a stumbling block to me. And so Paul here is telling us it's our mindset. We have to have the same mindset that Jesus had. And so when we look at what he claims for us as Jesus' example, then we can begin to understand it a little bit better. Or let me say it this way. When we look at how Jesus agaped us, when we look at how Jesus ascribed worth to others at a cost to himself, then we begin to get a picture of what it is God's asking of us. Then we begin to get a real good solid view of what it means to love others as I have loved you and thereby showing the world that you belong to me. So the first thing he says, he said, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So picture this, Jesus with the Father in glory. The Father says, I want you to go and reconcile creation. Jesus could have said, nah, it's comfortable. I think I'll just hang out here with you. So what he's really talking about here, what did Jesus sacrifice? Jesus was willing to sacrifice his position. He was willing to sacrifice his position. And so when we talk about agapeing other people, are we willing to get out of our comfort zone? Are we willing to give up what we see as something that's really good, something we've attained, some position that we've we've begun to live into that we might actually have to give up in order to ascribe worth to somebody else. He did not think equality with God is something to cling to. And the reason he didn't is because he knew that he had something that God wanted him to do for the greater good. And we're all here as believers of Jesus tonight, if you have faith in him, because Jesus was willing to do that because you were worth it to him. He gave up position. Secondly, it says he gave up his divine privileges. Privilege is a great word in our culture right now, isn't it? It's the buzzword. Living in privilege. Let me say this is about as political as I ever get, okay? Can I do this? I did not ask to be born a white male in America from a middle-class family. I had no control over that, right? But I'd be foolish to deny that being a white male in America from a middle-class family gives me privileges. I don't have to worry about my vehicle being stopped on the side of the road and me being put under suspicion. That doesn't happen to me. It happens to brothers and sisters. I don't have to worry about my pay rate being 70 to 80% of what the other gender makes for the very same job. There is privilege in our society. There is privilege in our culture. And we can sit there and deny it because you know what happens? The people that have privilege generally don't tend to understand that they have privilege because it's like breathing the oxygen around them. But the love of God compels me to understand what my privileges are, and it compels me not to embrace my privileges and hang on to my privileges, but to lay those privileges down in order to make sure that my brothers and sisters who don't enjoy those privileges are lifted up. 
Because that's what Jesus did. He gave up his divine privileges. We, we live in a culture that idolizes rights. And yet, Christ is calling us to lay our rights down. Still like me? I'm serious about this, though. We're called to be different. Agape is different. It's different than hanging out with the people that think the same way you do and look the same way you do where everything's an echo chamber and you're just hearing what you want to hear. I mean, Dr. King said years ago, the saddest thing in America is the fact that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, the church, the body of Christ, is the most segregated part of our whole society and nothing's changed more or less in 50 years. Because we failed to agape each other. He gave up his divine privileges. Third, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. To me, this says Jesus gave up his pride. Being something completely different, completely other than human, he was willing to become human. He was willing to live what you and I experience. He was willing to enter into this with us. You know, we oftentimes just think, oh, yeah, he, he, he shows up at 30 years old, and he does these amazing things and has this amazing ministry for three years. But think about those 30 years. Think about the faithfulness that he showed to his mother and his father, showing up to work in the carpenter shop every single day. 30 years of living the same kind of life in you and I live, and then three years of exotic supernatural ministry. That shows how much he cares. That shows how much he wants us to understand that he knows what we go through. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be the outcast in society, right? Because people talked about him as the illegitimate kid from the mother who said she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? He knows these things. He knows when the rest of the world isn't acting out of love towards you. He knows what that feels like. And he gives up any form of pride that he could possibly have and becomes one of us. Then it says he humbled himself in obedience to God. This is the surrender of his will. This is him being willing to say, you know what, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to go through this. If any way that this cup, this cross, doesn't have to come as my destiny, then please take it away. But... Not my will, but your will be done. He lays down his will willingly for you and I because he loves us. He wants to ascribe worth. He recognizes that the cross is the means of ascribing worth to us. No greater love has any person than they, what? Lay down their life for another. What areas is God asking us to lay down our lives? Maybe not literally, but where do we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow into this agape? 
And lastly, it says he died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus sacrifices his dignity. Every statue that I ever saw in a Catholic church, every crucifix, doesn't do justice to what actually happens on that cross. For one, in modesty, we always have Jesus in a loincloth, right? No, he's naked. He's exposed. Completely vulnerable. Completely humiliated. That's the whole purpose of crucifixion. The Romans are trying to say, you mess with us, that's what's going to happen to you. You challenge our authority, we'll make a mockery out of you. Jesus goes willingly and surrenders his dignity. He gives up his position. He gives up his rights. He gives up his pride. He gives up his will. He gives up his dignity for you as an act of love, as an agape. It says, are you willing to do the same? Boyd says this, agape is not a feeling one has although certain feelings often follow from it. So we're not talking about warm fuzzies here, right? It is rather a commitment one makes, a stance one takes toward another, and an activity one does. Let me repeat that. Agape is not a feeling that one has. If you're waiting for those emotions so that you can cross the political divide, racial divide, economic divide, whatever divide you face. If you're waiting to feel it for the other person, it's probably not going to happen. You know how I know? Flip from the news channel you usually watch to the other one and see how long you last. It's everywhere. It's not going to come in your emotions. This is not an emotional thing, although he says feelings will come from it. But it's a commitment. It's saying, Jesus, you did this for me, and you've asked me to do it for others, and I will give my life to it. It's a stance one takes towards another. It says, regardless of what you give me back or what you don't give me back, I'm still going to agape you. And it's an activity one does. We follow through. We hear the voice of God saying, this is what I want you to do to the person who you think is unlovable. Here's what I want you to do for the person that you have no natural feelings towards. Here's my takeaway. We will faithfully obey God's command to love others only to the degree that we share God's estimation of their worth. Is that clear, what I'm saying there? We will faithfully obey this command to love others as we have been loved only to the degree that we share God's estimation of their worth. So if the person on the other side of the political spectrum is nothing to you than an enemy, somebody that you easily dismiss, somebody that you attach a label to, something that you dehumanize, because that's what our culture is really, really good at right now. Throw a label on them, dismiss them, ignore the fact that they're human, 
Ignore the fact that they may actually have a reason for thinking the way they think, even if you don't agree with it. It might be good to actually hear their reason. But see that person as someone that Jesus gave up his position, his rights, his will, his pride, and his dignity for. And if need be, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to help you to see that person the way he sees them. I've heard Christians pray that way at altars all of my Christian life. God, help me to do what you want me to do. Help me to see people the way you see them. But I don't see a lot of action. I don't see a lot of people willing to jump over that chasm, willing to deny self because they recognize the image of God that is created in that other person. We've got to get past the rhetoric. We've got to get past the politics. We've got to get past all of that and understand that that person is a human being worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They have inherent worth, and agape love ascribes inherent worth to the other at a cost to oneself. I mean, I can't, I can't say it any more plain than this. Agape love is really kind of what Christianity is all about, right? They come to Jesus and they say, what's, what's the greatest command in Scripture? Of course, Scripture at that time is the Old Testament, right? So if you have a Bible, the Old Testament takes up this much. That's the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. So what's the greatest command? What's the Old Testament all about? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So a thousand and or 970 pages boiled down to love, boiled down to agape the other person. The New Testament is exactly the same. Agape love is what it's all about. And so Paul would say to the Corinthians in that great chapter 13, anybody have a, a thing in your house that has Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Anybody have that at their wedding? Time's finally changing, hopefully. <laughs> everybody has it at their wedding. Everybody has one of those framed picture frames at least 20 years ago we all did. But you know how that chapter starts? That's verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind. In the first three verses, Paul says this. He says, if you speak in the tongue of angels, if you speak the languages of heaven and all the languages of man, but you don't have love, if you don't agape other people, then you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. There's a lot of that out there, isn't there? The world's doing that. There's so much noise. There's so much clanging and clamoring. Why would we join that? He says, if you can prophesy, if you're able to stand and speak the very words of God, and you possess all knowledge, if you're the theologian to end all theology, and you know the very secrets of God. You have deep, deep revelation. And you have faith that will move mountains. But you don't have love. You don't agape. You are nothing. 
hear that word? Nothing. We get taken in by all the people who sound so good and look so good and religious and have all of this, their stuff together, so to speak. God says it's agape that makes it. That's what turns you from nothing into something in God's eyes. How well do you love? And then he says, if you give everything you have to the poor, and if you even sacrifice your own body, you could be a martyr for the sake of Christ. But if you don't have love, if you don't agape, then you have gained nothing. That's pretty serious stuff right there. That's a pretty serious call to re-examine what your spiritual life looks like. A serious call to re-examine what you think is important in the spiritual life. All of us probably wish, man, I wish I prayed more. I wish I read my Bible more. I wish I served more. Start at the beginning. Get on your knees tomorrow and say, God, help me to love more. Help me to agape the people at work that drive me crazy. Help me to agape my kids, my parents, when they're annoying me. Help me to agape the guy that cuts me off on the road. That's my problem right there. Help me, God, to love the way you love me. And so the question I leave you with tonight is this. Are you willing to express love sacrificially so that others can experience the agape love of God? Are you willing to invest in another person that you normally wouldn't contact or communicate with so, so that their soul can feel its worth? I promise you this. You have a choice to be critical and judgmental of other people or to be forgiving and merciful towards people. I have a guy who trolls me on Facebook. I think I may have even shared this with you one time. A guy I worked with in Wisconsin who happens to be at the other end theologically who you know, believes in predestination and election and that certain people God condemned to be uh, from the beginning. You know, They just aren't saved. And he's very, very, mm, what's a good word, uh, fervent about pointing out my theological faults, although not directly. He won't respond to my post. He just puts another post of his own up there and talks about whatever it is I said. And, and here's the thing. I believe he loves Jesus. I believe that he sincerely believes he's doing right by pointing out other people's sins and where they're theologically wrong in his opinion. But I don't think anybody would ever go on to his post and say, that's a loving attitude. I mean, you know, you've heard this term, but I would classify this guy as falling into the same issue that the Pharisees had in Jesus' time. They were, we give the Pharisees a bad name, and there's some good reasons for that, but they were passionate about their zeal for serving God. But it was all about actions. It was all about the doing instead of the being. And what they did, as you see time and time and time again, 
is they're criticizing other people and demeaning other people and pushing other people away. You eat with tax collectors and sinners? We would never do that, and they didn't. So here's the choice. You can either fall into that camp, point out what everybody else is doing wrong, whether you do it verbally or not. You're doing it in your own heart or head. It's just as bad. Or you can be willing to step across the divide and agape that person. And I guarantee you that at the end, God is going to be more concerned with how loving you are rather than how right you are theologically. Brian Zond, another pastor teacher I love, says it this way, I'm not worried about having borders of love that are too broad. Loving too many people will hardly be a crime at the judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again tonight that you just love us with an everlasting love. You have drawn us to yourself by loving kindness. You enable us to feel the agape love that you have every moment of every day if we simply tune into it. And I pray, God, that you would continue to empower us to do that. I pray that you would just enable us to be mindful of who we are, the worth that we have because of who you made us to be and the fact that we walk in your very image. But God, I pray that you would give us a new mind and a new heart to see that for every other person. I pray that you would let the agape love that we receive just overflow in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, even right now, God, I pray you bring to mind for each of us someone, someone that's just the spur under our saddle right now, someone who we just find difficult, what sometimes is called the EGRs, the extra grace required. And God, I'm asking you to help each one of us make a commitment here tonight. Because as Greg Boyd said, it's a commitment, a stance, and then an action. Let us commit to praying for that person. Let us commit to finding a way to extend your love to that person. Because I believe, Father, that as we do this once, it becomes something that we'll want to do more and more because we'll see change. Maybe not in the other person. Maybe their attitude towards us doesn't change at all, but something will change in us because we'll become more and more like Christ. We'll become true Jesus followers, imitating the love that you've shown us. And in this, God, I pray that you would bind us closer to each other, that you would make us a community of agape, a community committed to loving, a community committed to being your heart to the people around us. But it begins among us. The scriptures are talking about the way we love each other, first and foremost. It begins in this room. 
So I pray, Lord, if there's any broken relationships in this room, if there's any strain between anyone in this room, I pray that you would break our hearts tonight and that we would confess it and that we would seek reconciliation and allow your healing to restore those relationships. Because we recognize, God, that all of this that I'm praying is through you and for you. To your glory and to your honor we live. In Jesus' name we all say, Amen. God bless you. Let's stand and worship one more time.